thank you, Ryan, for sharing. And thank you, Pastor James. It's been a great time being back here for a week now. We came in on Monday. A good time fellowshipping with many of you, visiting your flocks, and and uh, even spending time over dinner. It was a good time to to uh, work out with James a couple of days ago. Man, a man strong. <laughs> the last time we worked out together was 10 years ago. I don't know if you remember that. And he's gotten a lot stronger. He's like working out with Ivan Drago. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> he almost broke me. But Church discipline got a lot harder, uh, a lot scarier just now. Well, I um, wanted to share a little bit. They asked me to share about Czech briefly, so I'll try to make it brief before we get into the message. But um, I want to send greetings from the Smiths. They uh, love the, the church here. They love the fellowship of the saints here, and they love each of you, and many of you they know personally. So they just want to send their greetings. The entire church sends their greetings, so I want to um, relay that to you. Um, few things people often ask me, they often ask me, how was Czech? And it's like, not like ask, for me to ask you, how's being in the U.S.? You know, I mean, we've been living there for so long, we kind of gotten acclimated there, and it's like home, so it's, um, it's just a lot like what you're doing here. We're just trying to live for the Lord, be good Christians. Um, first, um, trying to love my wife and, and uh, be a good example in the home, and just, um, you know, work hard for the Lord. So it's, um, a lot like yeah, just what you're doing here, except in a different country. One thing that's been uh, neat about coming back is I kind of feel like I had to get the tongues all of a sudden, like my tongue's loosed. I could speak English and I don't have to wait for someone to translate to you. I, I could sing and I can understand what I'm saying and it's just great. So it's been... <laughs> I'm used to talking to somebody thinking, okay, let me see, can I, do I know how to say this in Czech? And then I think, okay... I don't, but do I know something similar in Czech? Okay, now is it worth it for after all this time to finally say the sentence? If not, then I'll just smile and nod. <laughs> so that's often what happens. I just do a lot of smiling and nodding, and you know. But uh, it's just nice to be able to talk. So, um, what few things we missed while we were away? Uh, we missed uh, Mexican food, <laughs> really, because uh, I don't miss Asian food. Elaine cooks good food, so we have Asian food at home all the time, and um, you know, there's a lot of American food she makes as well, but we don't cook Mexican food at home, so Ryan, if you want to invite us to your wedding, we'd love to come. <laughs> it sounds really good. So, but we'll probably go to Alberto's for lunch afterward. A uh, few things we missed as, for the church. We love, we just missed the flock. So it was just love coming back and seeing um, people at flock this week. And, uh, you know, we get the teach, we love the teachings too, but I, we get them online. We hear all the teachings. We heard all the shepherd sharings and your testimonies. So, um, you know, we hear those things online, but we just, the interaction with people, getting to see people face to face, just talking with you, hearing your hearts. And so that's just one thing we miss is interacting with each of you. So we're looking forward to that this month. Um, getting reacquainted with all of you, and for those we haven't met yet, we'd love to meet you. So, I mean, one thing we learned, we learned, um, or we're seeing that church planning is difficult. It, it's just really difficult. There's uh, one missionary that we know um, who came in with Peter around the same time um, as a missionary in Czech Republic, and they're, they were serving on the other side of the country and recently got kicked out of their church. He, you know, he's preaching the Word of God. It's just a difficult place to minister. It's, it, even in the church, the Christians um, there, the few that are there, are um, just aren't as committed as as we would lo- like to see them. Um, fruit takes time, a long time. This one lady that um, someone we know, Elaine and I, from many years ago, they've been ministering to her, I think, for the last seven or eight years, and um, recently she's had a, a baby. A small child, and her boy, her boyfriend, her the father of the baby, recently left her for somebody else. And after seven, eight years of pouring into her, she had no. She knew that the one person she could turn to was Sonia. So she turns to Sonia, and Sonia again. She's heard the gospel a hundred times. Again, gives her the only hope she could have, and in the gospel, and she finally accepts Christ after seven, eight years of ministering the gospel to her. She has nowhere to live because her boyfriend um, kicked her out, so she moved back home with her mom, which is hours away from uh, where we are. So we'd love to have her at our church, but she's so far away. But in God's sovereignty, 
the, the like-minded missionary that got kicked out of his church lives down the street from her mom. So in God's sovereignty, they place them together so they'll, he can, his family can shepherd her through this difficult time. So church plan is difficult. Fruit takes a long time to grow. But the Smiths are very faithful and they're just uh, unwavering in their joy and their love for Christ. So it's been a, a great challenge for us. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention was just noticing that being there, everyone obviously knows we're not Czech. They look at us. And I, for some reason, I think they know we're not Vietnamese either because that's what they, the most Asian population there is Vietnamese. And they, I think, assume that we're English or you, uh, American. So when we meet somebody, if they automatically think we're American. And everything I do, it's like, oh, it's because you're American. <laughs> or you eat that because you're American. Or they think like, oh, do you Dress like that because you make your hair like because you're American. <laughs> Every decision I make, they they think it's because I'm American. I do that. It's just I think just me, but um, they tend to view everything, all my actions, as reflecting on America. And I was kind of neat to see that because it's the same same reality in the in the spiritual realm. Now, we're citizens of, of heaven, and when people see you, often you'll be the only window they have into. Christianity and what what they know about Christ and what they know about they don't know the Bible don't read the Bible they don't know much about God and who He is but they see you and they think oh you do that because you're a Christian and it's reminding me that I need to be careful how I live amongst um, unbelievers amongst the world because they're watching so that's um, a few of the things that that we learned well as we want to um, share more with you in person about our time in Czech we so much to share but. Um, we'll look forward to doing that more in person. As we turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, I want to um, ask a question. What is your favorite description for a believer? Just think about that for a moment. What is your favorite description for a believer? Maybe it's just, you know, being a Christian. You know, a little Christ. Just want to be like, you know, like Christ. Or just, you just like that terminology. Having the, um, the term Christian apply to you. Maybe disciple. You, you want to learn from Christ. So you like the term disciple uh, or child of God. You just are amazed at the fact that we could be adopted by God and be a child of, of him. Maybe a servant. You just All you want to do is be a galley slave for Christ. So just love that terminology, servant or slave even. Some of the men might like to be soldiers for Christ. It's another good terminology. It's good steward. Those of us who sense the... That's a sin in our flesh. Maybe sometimes we just are so amazed that we could be called saints. We're 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 holy in God, in God's eyes, because of Christ. We get to be called saints. Um, Many other terminology that Scripture uses: fellow heirs of Christ, friend, witness. I want to suggest to you another word, another terminology that is uh, not used so often in the Scriptures, but after having had the privilege of studying it this week. It saw how rich this um, this word the, the the description is for us Christians. And that's the term ambassador, an ambassador for Christ. Paul uses it only twice in the New Testament, once in Ephesians six twenty, and the second time he right here in Second Corinthians five twenty. Paul says in Second Corinthians five twenty, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Make God making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors for Christ. So what does it mean to be an ambassador? I'm going to look at that term this morning. What does, it look, what does it mean to be an ambassador? An ambassador is an authorized messenger or representative of a, of a country or um, some organization. Um, in diplomacy, the ambassador has the highest rank. Um, and he uh, is the head of of an embassy, that the the building, the um, organization that he is in charge of is called an embassy. So the church is it's like an embassy of sorts. The difference would be in, in the world, for each embassy there's only one ambassador. But in the church, there isn't just one ambassador. It's not like the pastor is the ambassador and everyone else is something lower. We're all given the privilege and honor of being called ambassadors for Christ. So we are each ambassadors we're each representatives of the king, of the king of kings. 
the other difference is in the world, ambassadors are treated with a lot of respect. And in fact, they're given diplomatic immunity. Um, you know, we have no such immunity in, as Christians, as ambassadors for Christ. We are, we're not immune to suffering. Paul described himself in Ephesians 6.20, not just as an ambassador, but an ambassador in chains. That's just a paradox. Can you imagine in this day and age for an ambassador to be imprisoned? What that, what, um, that would mean, the ramifications politically for that. But he's an ambassador in chains for the gospel. He would even call himself, in 1 Corinthians 4, 13, we've become as a scum of the world, dregs of all things, even until now. Well, the term ambassador is a, is a rich one. We're going to look at this text. Um, and but I wanted to mention, I'm indebted to Paul David Tripp for showing me that this idea of ambassador applies not just to uh, for evangelism, where we are ambassadors of Christ to the world, but even to one another in the church. We're ambassadors to one another. We represent Christ. It's not a part-time job. It's not just when we are out there um, in the world evangelizing. It's all the time we're ambassadors. It's just our identity. And that, that has ramifications, implications for church discipline. If someone comes to speak the truth to you, he's representing Christ. He's representing the King. So we should hear him, hear the warning as such. Well, in order to get into this text in chapter 5 of Second Corinthians, we kind of need to see the um, context. So I wanted to look at the background. And Corinth was an important city. It was also a very pagan city. In fact, they had a term to Corinthianize. You may have heard this. And it just refers to gross immorality uh, and drunken debaucheries if someone were to be, if someone were to Corinthianize. Just the name of the, of the city just, just reeked with the sin. And it, it's like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. A true sin city. Paul planned a church in the city on a second missionary journey. You can read that in Acts 18. He had the help of Priscilla and Aquila, and then later on, Silas and Timothy joined him. Paul ministered there for a year and a half before moving on to Ephesus. Pagan culture, seeped into the church. Church had many problems. A lot of problems. So Paul wrote a letter to them. It wasn't 1 Corinthians. He wrote a letter before that. And it's called a lost letter, because it was never discovered. He wrote a letter to correct some of these problems. The Corinthians wrote a letter back to Paul. They wanted some clarification. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians, and that's his response to that letter. Then, soon after that, false apostles showed up at this church. They're like wolves amongst the sheep. They began to settle at first, but growing attacks against Paul. They gained a foothold in the church. And they attacked not only Paul's character, but his apostleship. So Paul hears about this problem, leaves Ephesus, and goes to confront these apostles, these false apostles. And they attack him to his face. And nobody comes to his defense. I mean, imagine if James were to go away from missions, and he finds out there's these false teachers in here. So he leaves the city, comes back to confront them, and they say, you're a false apostle to James, and all of you to sit there and say nothing. <laughs> James is shaking his head. I, yeah, that would be so discouraging for James. He would walk out of here. I don't know if he'd ever come back. I mean, that kind of betrayal, not just of the person, but just of, of the message he taught. So Paul leaves sad. You know, he gathers, He's an apostle. He gathered himself and says to write a letter. And he writes what we call, what it's called the severe letter. We don't have this one either. It's called the severe letter. And he writes this letter and, um, to confront the church. But then he's second guessing himself. Was it too severe? Was it too hard? I love this church. I wonder if I was too strong. I wonder how they responded. He had an open door for the gospel and he left it because of his concern for this church in Corinth. And he was looking for Titus to find out how they responded. He finally catches up with Titus and he hears the good news. They received the letter well. Most of the church repented. Most have come back to his side. 
A few didn't, but most did. So he, good news, but still he knows that he's smart enough to know he can't leave it there. He's got to stamp, stomp this problem out, and he sits down to write Second Corinthians. He wants to finish the job, and he needs to defend his apostleship. Second Corinthians is his defense as an apostle toward this church. We need to understand that. That's what he's doing. And as he's defending himself, it's interesting, you start reading, I've been reading over and over again, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, kind of see, get a feel for it. Interesting how it begins. You don't have to turn there. I'll kind of read some selections for you. Second Corinthians 1, he begins, it's one of my favorite verses on, on, on comfort and suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of, all, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. He goes and talks about how the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Later on, chapter 1, he says, Indeed, we had a sentence of death within ourselves, much affliction and anguish of heart. In chapter 2, chapter 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body of the, de- the dying of Jesus. Chapter 4. Our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed. In chapter 5, he says, Indeed, in this house, in this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with the dwelling from heaven. I mean, he, he wants to die. He wa- he'd rather die and be in heaven. That's his preference. You remember in Acts 21, where they... Or Agabus came down and bound his hand and said, this is a, what's going to happen to you, Paul. And they begged him not to go. And his reply, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he doing? He's defending himself by his sufferings. That's a strange way to defend yourself. He goes on chapter 11, and this is where he really gets into it. Are they servants of Christ speaking of the false apostles? I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times not number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty nine lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent in a deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness. Dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. What's his point? Why is he going through all this list of suffering? Why is he comparing himself to these false apostles and listing his suffering as his defense? Because who in the right mind would serve Christ through all that suffering if he wasn't a true apostle? Who in their right mind would go through what Paul did if he wasn't really um, a true apostle of Christ? And, and then we had to ask, well, what, what motivated Paul? What motivated Paul to go through all that and still maintain his faith? Because he really didn't have to do all that. He could have toned it down. He didn't have to give up his Christianity. He could have just toned it down a little bit. Just maybe not so radical. <laughs> maybe just, you know, if they you see them getting angry, just kind of step back a little bit and be, you know, a little silent for a few days and come back. But he didn't do that. And we find the answer here in Second Corinthians 5. We find the answer in Second Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What is his motivation? What is his, what drives him to continue on? It's the love of Christ. Depending on translation, you might have compel, control, or even constrain. It, it's the word in Greek is soon echo. It's a compound word. It, it generally, originally this means to hold fast or to oppress, but it could also mean to hold prisoner or uh, guard or control or compel. So translation is good. But you might be wondering, why compel and control? Why two different translations um, for the same word in this context? 
Well, they both kind of mean the same thing in this case. I like the picture one pastor gave um, of a roller coaster. I don't know. How many people here like roller coasters? Quite a few people. Elaine, my wife, loves roller coasters. How many people don't like roller coasters? Okay, I'm with you. (laughs) Do not like roller coasters. Uh, Czech Republic doesn't have six flags. We don't have Knott's Berry Farm. But we do have carnivals. We have annual carnivals. And um, last year we went to a carnival and Elaine wanted to go on this ride, so, you know, I had to, I had to, <laughs> I said, okay, I'll go with you. Well, thing is, she asked in front of Peter, and I couldn't, so I don't want to look bad. <laughs> Fear of man is a terrible thing. So, we go on this ride, and it's, you know, it looks harmless enough. It's a big platform in a circle, and then sitting down in this chair, and it just starts rotating in a circle. Okay, not so bad. But, in the midst of this big circle are other smaller circles. And in our chair, our circle is circling within this bigger circle. And then our chair starts to move and goes this way and starts to go around. So while we're spinning around within itself, it's, it's going up and down. And went like that for like five minutes. And I was really thankful I didn't eat the pulled sausages right before. But that was the last ride we did in the, in the carnival. After that, I think she learned not to ask in front of Peter. But many of you have been on car- um, not just carnival rides, but roller coasters, and you know what it's like. You get in, you, that bar comes down, and then first thing that happens is what? You start to go uphill, really slow, slow enough for you to decide, I want out. <laughs> and I've been on a ride with uh, Elaine before and Six Flags, and you know, this is when I was trying to when we were dating, I was trying to impress her, so that was my reason back then. And I, I, real, I realized this is a mistake. It's not worth it. <laughs> I want out. And so I, I looked at the, la- the ladder on the right. It's easy. You can just kind of get out. And <laughs> so I, this is great. And I start to move, and then what happens? I'm stuck. This bar is con- constraining me. It's controlling me. This bar is compelling me to stay. And so as I creep up, I see how deep a drop it's going to be. I don't want to go down there, and I don't... I decide not to, but I'm compelled. I'm controlled by that bar. It won't let me go any other way. And I have to go down. I have to do three loops. And I have to go through the corkscrew and turn left and right. It's, it's, that's, that's the word. That's the idea. That's a picture of that word. It's compelling. It's constraining. So maybe you see in life, you can understand what Paul is going through or just in your own life. Up ahead, there's a trial, some deep valley that you're looking at, you don't want to go. You know, if it's up to you, if it was just up to you, you would give up. Not worth it. But what happens? You're Christian. You think of Christ, you think of the cross, and the love of Christ, it compels you. It compels you. It controls you. It forces you to go face that valley. Maybe you don't want your life turned upside down for the gospel, but you think of the cross. You think of the love of Christ and it compels you. It compels you, controls you, constrains you. You don't want to. You don't know the future. You're you're fearful about going left or right, and in the way you think God's leading you, and you don't want to go. But what happens? You think of the love of Christ, and it compels you to turn whichever way God wants you to go. That is Paul's motivation: the love of Christ. That is um, what drove him to such. He wasn't a masochist. He, he endured the suffering he did because of the love of Christ. Not just his love for Christ, but Christ's love for him. And it wasn't just a love that was ethereal or just a, some touchy-feely kind of love. It was a love demonstrated very specifically. And Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ is in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, and who loved me and gave himself for me. So how did he love me? By giving himself for me. How did he demonstrate his love? By dying for us. And that's exactly what our text says here. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, concluded this that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. It is the love demonstrated on the cross that's compelling Paul to continue in ministry. 
to continue as an ambassador. That's his motivation, to be an ambassador for Christ. We don't, also, we don't only learn about Paul's motivation as an ambassador, but we see also the ambassador's agenda. Paul gives us the ambassador's agenda in the next verse, next two verses. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Sometimes we see that word that or so that, and in the Greek it says hina. It's a purpose clause. It's telling you the reason why something happens. What is, the, what is God's agenda? What is his reason that Christ died for us? It's not so we can live for ourselves, but it's so that we can live for him, for God's glory. That's his, it's a new purpose in life. Now that we're saved, now that you're a Christian, we're not here living for ourselves, but we're living for Christ. And that makes sense as an ambassador. What ambassador lives for himself? What ambassador um, has his own agenda? His ambassador's agenda is a king's. He represents a king and his agenda. But so often, for us, we don't live like an ambassador who represents a king, but we want to be the king ourselves. We want to represent ourselves. We want to live for ourselves and not for God's glory. Not Paul. That's not Paul's agenda. He is an ambassador and he has a new purpose in life. To live for the king and do whatever he wants, not have his own way. He's also given a new point of view. A new point of view. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He's got a new point of view. He sees people not according to the flesh, but from God's point of view. He's an ambassador for Christ. Do we still see people from the old point of view? Do we see our neighbors as just that annoying neighbor? Or maybe an irresponsible roommate? Do we just see nosy co-workers or just that person just a doctor or my, my waiter? Maybe just a... a annoying sibling? Or do you have a different point of view? That I'm an ambassador for Christ and this person, the people in the world are people in need of reconciliation. The people in the world are in need of God's message and I'm an ambassador for Christ to bring His message to not only the world but to His own people. Are you... Are they someone to whom the king would have you speak on his behalf? That should be our new point of view. When we see people from now on, we should see people from the point of view as ambassador. Does a king want you to speak on his behalf with this person? That would change the way we interact with anybody. So we're given these, these new eyes, spiritual eyes to see, a new point of view. We also see not only the ambassador's motivation and agenda, but his character. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are new creations. We are new creatures in Christ. That's a positional reality. We're, we're new positionally. We are made new. We have new life. We are um, completely new cre- creatures, yet we still have that flesh, right? So our practice has to match that position. But one thing we need to realize, we are all ambassadors. You can't, you can't decide whether you want to be one or not. You already are an ambassador. You represent Christ. And the question is, are you a good ambassador or are you a poor example, a poor ambassador? Does your character represent the king? Or does your character um, speak lies about the king? Because the ambassador, his, his, his um, character will, will tell you something about the king that, that he is sent from. And so our lives have to be Christ-like as much as possible 
so that we can rightly, correctly, and honorably reflect the character of our king. Paul continues to tell us not only about the ambassador's character, but his message. Verse 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I read a story a long time ago, and I, I can't remember where I got it from, so I couldn't find it. Uh, so I don't remember all the details, I'll just make it up. <laughs> I think the point will still be the same. It was the summer of uh, 1796, during the height of the French Revolution. Napoleon's army was um, under attack, and he wanted to write a letter to the, to the commander in the field. So he sends his runner to go and, and bring this letter out to the, um, to the commander. And he, but he tells him, I don't want this letter to be captured, so you'll have to memorize it. You have to memorize it word for word, and then destroy the letter so there's no evidence. So he memorizes this letter, and Napoleon is known for these great speeches that really um, motivated troops to, to battle, and, and it's like William Wallace kind of um, speeches. And so he, the messenger memorizes this letter, but as he's repeating it, repeating it to himself on the journey, realizes this is this is not uh, typical of Napoleon's letters. Normally, he's a lot more. Um, He's got more gusto in his letter. I'll just add a few words to help him out a little bit. Maybe he was tired. So he adds a few words here and there. And just maybe a little more emphasis. And maybe um, just to spice it up a little bit. And he goes and arrives to the troops, to the, to, goes to the commander and gives him, delivers this message. And he says, you know, that he repeats it and he just says it with such gusto. And the troops get rallied and they go off to fight. And, um, and then he returns and Napoleon hears back from the field that there was a slaughter. His whole army got destroyed. And he asked his messenger, what did you say to them? What, did you, what message did you give them? And he said, oh, the, the message you wrote, you know, the letter that you gave me, I memorized it. He said, you memorized exactly, word for word? So, well, you know, I added a few words here and there, but pretty much the same. He said, do you realize that that message I gave you was in code? I was warning them of a surprise attack. And I was warning them to flee. Because you changed the message, they didn't get it, and now they're all dead. Well, that's the story you know, I heard a long time ago. And it really just it, it reminded me of the importance that the messenger has no right to alter the message. The messenger has nothing to do with the message. The, mes- the message comes from the king, and he's got the right to say whatever he wants to say. The ambassador, our job is to deliver it. We're just a messenger. We don't have the right to, to, to mess with that message. So we have to look to Scripture to get it right. A few, few um, principles to draw out from these verses. The first thing you notice is in verse 18, all this is from God. So who is the initiator of this message? Who is the initiator of salvation? Who is the first mover here? It's God. God is the initiator of salvation. It is he who is saving. It is he who, who um, sent Christ to die on the cross for us. We also see he is the commissioner. He gave us this ministry. Not only did he, is he initiating salvation for us, but he's giving to us as ambassadors this ministry of reconciliation. Continues in verse 19. God is the reconciler. As in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. He is initiating that. It's interesting that God is reconciling the world to himself. That, what that implies is that the world is at enmity with, with him. The reason why you need reconciliation is because the relationship is, is not good. You don't reconcile friends. What he's implying here, the, the implication is that the world is at war with God, that, or God is at war with the world, and they're enemies of him. Paul makes that clear in Romans 5. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by His life. And considering the reconciliation of God, 
he describes himself as an enemy. He says, we were once enemies of God, but now he has reconciled us. And that is the same message we bring to the world. The world is they think that they, they don't think they hate God. You talk to people, hey, I don't hate God. I'm not, you know, I'm not against God. I just, I just don't believe everything you believe. I just don't believe the Bible, but I don't hate God. They don't realize, and it's our job to let them know, well, it doesn't matter what, if you think you hate God. God is angry at you. You're his enemy. And we need to warn them of that. And God wants to reconcile the relationship. That is um, part of what it means to what the good news is all about. First Peter three eighteen, for Christ di- also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. And that's that idea of being reconciled. That's why John Piper wrote that book, God of the Gospel. What is the good news of the gospel? It is not that you just get freed from sin or freed from hell; is that you get to have reconciliation with God. That sinners who don't deserve a place in, uh, in heaven, it's not that you just get heaven, but heaven without God is meaningless. It's that you get to have a right, right relationship with God. That is the good news of the gospel, that we get God, that we have a relationship with Him. So God is the initiator of salvation. He's, he commissioned us to bring this message of reconciliation. He's reconciling the world to Himself. And he is also the justifier. You can't have reconciliation without justification. God um, is, it says, not counting their trespasses against them. He's not counting their sins against them. Blessed are the man whose sins are not counted against them. That is a description of justification. God is, through Christ, in Christ, through his shed blood on the cross, justifying lost sinners. We'll continue on that theme um, in the next verse, but before that we'll get to the ambassador's plea. In verse 20, after describing in such detail, he spells out in plain language who we are. He's been describing what an ambassador looks like this whole time, his motivation, his, his agenda, his character, his message. Now he just spells it out as if we couldn't figure out by now what he's talking about. He says, verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is one of those verses where you can just kind of hear Paul's heart bleeding. He's, he's pleading, imploring on, his, on God's behalf, on Christ's behalf, for sinners to be reconciled to him. You know, when I w- first became a Christian, uh, soon after 95, I had a lot of zeal for evangelism. Um, I just, it was so incredible to me. I just want everyone to be saved. And first thing I did later that next year was write an email to all my friends from high school. And, for, and I said, you're all going to hell. You're all sinners and you're all damned. That was my email. <laughs> I, I did say you could you know, be saved through Christ, but it was just, you're sinners, damned, for, damned to hell. That's who you are. Take it or leave it, you know, and here's the, you know, trust in Christ and for your salvation. It was just very harsh, no, no, no grace in that. You, know, you can ask how he got that email, he didn't like it at all. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it was, later on he became a Christian, I think, uh, somebody else must have shared a gospel with him, I didn't do a good job. But, but that's not, our job isn't just to yell at people with the, with the harsh realities of, or the fact that they're enemies of God. Our job is to not just give information, but to plead with them to come to be reconciled to God. It is it's not just, evangelism isn't just giving them information. The picture I have in my mind is of a doctor who discovered a cure for some disease like cancer. And he's, his first job is to convince the patient you have cancer, and then to plead with them to take the cure. That that is the picture. Think of the lost, not just as people who need to hear this message, but as people dying of a spiritual disease, the sin virus. 
and we had the cure. And with the same passion a doctor would have who found a cure for AIDS, plead with them to take the cure. That is the, that is the, Paul's heart as an ambassador. He's not just yelling at them that they're so messed up, but he's appealing to them, pleading with them, imploring them, be reconciled to God. He goes on to, culminates this text with a, a verse that really should have, it should be its own message. In fact, it could be ten messages. It's, it's a, a verse that pretty much summarizes all of soteriology. Every aspect of salvation, you can glean some, some truth from this verse that it touches upon that. It talks about substitutionary atonement, um, justification, the righteousness of God, sinlessness of Christ, imputation. This is one verse, you know, we know all scripture is God breathed and it's useful, but sometimes some verses, just because of their brevity, their, 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 um, economy of words, just the impact it has in such few words really stand out. This is one of those verses. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel in a nutshell. This is the ambassador's good news. And it, it tells us a few things we can learn here and as we'll mention today. Um, there's a, a parallelism, parallelism going on here. Um, God is treating Christ as if he had lived our sinful lives and he's then going to treat us as if we lived Christ's righteous life. And that is, that is good news. That is a good exchange. We see um, Christ here when it says he made him to be sin. Don't be confused. He, Christ did not become a sinner as some suggest. But picture if you can imagine all the heinousness, the grotesqueness of sin embodied in, in one person. God treated Christ as if, as if he was that. He wasn't. He was sinless, text makes clear. He was righteous, but he's treating him as if he's committed all of our sins. And then he treats us as if we lived his righteous life. That's why Christ couldn't just come for a weekend to, to die on the cross and, um, and then be raised from the dead. He had to live that, that righteous life for 30 years and fulfill all righteousness. Live a perfect life. And when God gives us, when we become the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we get that's imputed to us, I think it's specifically Christ's righteousness, the one, what, the, what he fulfilled in his life. So God is making a, this exchange. If you think of having a debt, maybe um, made some poor decisions in life and you end up going into debt, say like $10 million, <laughs> something you can never pay back. You can never pay back this, this, this debt. And what this the picture is of a benefactor, a good friend, comes and pays off your debt. And that would be good news, wouldn't it? But imagine that. If you had all this debt and it gets paid off, where are you left with? You're at zero. You're broke. You can't even buy lunch. <laughs> you won't make it to Tuesday with zero dollars. You need something more than just being forgiven of your sins. You need the righteousness of, God, of Christ. You need to have something added to your account, not just to have the debt removed. So God gives us both. He removes our debt of sin and it adds to our account the righteousness of Christ. And thereby he justifies us. He, that's the way he can be the, the just, both the just and the justifier. We're justified before him because we have Christ's righteousness. It's as if we're still sinful, but God looks at, this, looks at us as if we lived Christ's life, like we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. Well, we've seen the ambassador's motivation, agenda, the ambassador's character, message, how he pleads, pleads with 
the world to be reconciled to God and the good news that he brings. Just to wrap up with a few questions or just a few thoughts. Do you recognize that you are an ambassador? Or do you live as if you're the king? As if life is for you? You want everything to have go your way. You want you want everything your way and not in the way that the king desires. Do you recognize that you're an ambassador? Do you reflect on the cross as a motivation for your life? Are you motivated by the love of Christ? Or is there some other motivation that we have? Could you remember the king's agenda? Remember the king's agenda? He's got a new purpose for you. He wants you to not live for yourselves, but for him. We need to resemble Christ's character, conform to Christ's image. And we should remind ourselves of the gospel, the message gospel, each day. Some helpful questions from Paul David Tripp to kind of draw out some of um, where you stand. Where in life do you find irritation, anger, or frustration that reveals a commitment to your own agenda and not the Lord's? Repeat that. Where in life do you find irritation, anger, or frustration that reveals a commitment to your own agenda and not the Lord's? Because when you become angry, either at your spouse or your children or at a friend or just even at a waiter, you're revealing your commitments to your own agenda and not to the king's. It's not the king's agenda you're being angry about. It's about your own. Where are your opportunities to be part of what God is doing in others' lives? In what ways is God calling you to personal sacrifice in order to be his ambassador? Where is God calling you to speak as an agent of reconciliation? So some questions to think about. I just want to close with a passage from Scripture, from Ezekiel 33. I just, you can just, uh, don't, you don't have to turn there, just listen. This is the word of the Lord to Ezekiel. And he's going to use a word picture here that's different from ambassador, but has a similar, um, similar concept. Chapter 33. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees a sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees a sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, if I have appointed you a watchman for the household of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Sobering words from Ezekiel 33. I can understand hearing that why Jeremiah didn't want to speak any longer for God. I can understand why he didn't want to, um, to continue to warn people of a sword coming. And it came to a point where he decides not to, but it's like a, a fire within his bones and he can't help but 
let it out. But that's not our case. We're not just warning people of a sword only. We have, it's not just the sword's coming, you're gonna die. It's, we, we have a, a different message. A sword's coming, but there's shelter. You can be reconciled with your enemy, with God. You can be reconciled with the God, the King of, of heaven and earth, if you just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. There's a fortress that will protect you, and that is Christ. So our message is, is of hope, and that should encourage us to be faithful all the more to be ambassadors for him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for, first of all, our salvation. Thank you for saving each of us who know you, for reconciling us to yourself, for each of us were enemies of you, yet you, through your Son, treated him as if he lived our sinful wretched lives and are now treating us as if we live his righteous life what a reason to sing for joy what a reason to worship our redeemer and what a reason to go out with this great message and to be ambassadors for the king what a privilege you have called us to that we get to represent the king with such a glorious message Help us to be faithful, watchmen, so that the blood will not be on our hands. Thank you for this church, for I know the people here, your your people, love you and are eager to be ambassadors for Christ. We need your help, and we ask for your grace. In your son's name, amen.